so going back to the productivity thing here. So we're talking about sleep as an activity that is potentially something that is preventing us from doing something else. We've talked about it in terms of chimps, theoretically, to try and give us some idea of what our evolutionary environment might have looked like. But for humans today, it's very different. So we might be like Elon Musk and we're thinking that if we sleep only four hours a night, we can spend those other four hours trying to get us to Mars or whatever it is. So there's this very real sort of work side of this that, that um, pertains to this trade-off. And so related to that, we can certainly thinking about it evolutionarily is kind of the crux of, of this discussion, certainly. But if we were to sort of speculate in terms of our modern human lifestyle, Nico Damas is asking, related to the productivity piece, since or if sleeping encourages maintaining recently acquired memories, wouldn't that potentially suggest that animals that focus on sleep in some way might retain more of their recently acquired memories, uh, behaviors, learned behaviors, those kinds of things? Mm -hmm. In the case of rats, you can impair their learning by impairing yeah, their sleep. Sure. But uh, it doesn't appear to me that the pattern is that animals who sleep more learn more. It doesn't right. seem like it's that straightforward. I would agree. But when you're to, to your question about the all-nighter, um, that yeah, has yeah. been looked at. And I think that the general advice for, for students in the audience is that you're probably best off not staying up all night before the big test because that time is better spent uh, totally. accomplishing some memory yeah, consolidation. Yeah. Right. As an absolutely yeah. fanatic educator, mm -hmm. I very strongly counsel against yeah. pulling all-nighters before tests and stuff. Right. Cramming is a great way to make sure that you're one of those people who eventually gets a degree and then years later says, I went to four years of college and learned nothing. And that's probably true. They yeah. probably did learn nothing exactly. whatsoever. I spent my entire college career cramming. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact. I remember nothing. <laughs> Just kidding. Fun fact. I have never pulled an all-nighter. No, have I have I. Ever. I do. I do all my work gradually through the yeah. course and of the. I, and I don't think know, I'm not quite as good of a planner as coffee, but. Uh, I, I learned early on that staying up all night was counterproductive for me. Yeah, I just buckets can't. and I buckets can't of evidence show that cramming is a horrible strategy. How did you ever get to medical school anyway? How did you wind up smarter than me anyway? <laughs> just imagine <laughs> what he'd have been like if he had good hygiene. Right, <laughs> hygiene is uh, that's my my problem. Um, Among others. <laughs> on that note, we have another question. It's a good thing his mother didn't hear him say <laughs> that. To, to answer the original question, um, yes, these, these studies suggest that. If individual A has sleep impaired, their memory consolidation is reduced. At a species level, you're very far removed. You know, mm, right, uh, yeah, a yeah. human that can walk on two legs mm -hmm. all the time will do very well, but a chimp that does the same thing may not do so well. So elephants, which are known to never forget, uh, in the wild, they may only sleep an average of two to four hours per night. Wow. Wow. Yes. Crazy. How many leaves so do listen, you think what, you have to so eat this, this of an elephant-sized body? Or an elephant-sized bowel movement. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of leaves. It probably takes more than 12 hours a day to eat that many They'd leaves. They probably stay up awake all night going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, I'm going to have to pass all that hay sooner or later. <laughs> but, but really, God, I think that I, there's, a, there's a really important point, I think, that you're, you're getting to, which is what can we learn from some of these comparative yeah. comparisons? Right that teach us about 
the function of sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and you've done a little bit of this just in humans, so not really a comparative study, but looking at seasonality, temperature, thermoregulation, energy, homeostasis. What can you tell us about that in sleep? Well, uh, to make things even more complicated, um, what we found was that in two separate populations, both the San and the Chimane, these are the only two populations we had the data to do this test, the average sleep duration in the summer and the winter was a full hour apart. The same people. Wow. So the same people, same population, sleep duration changes quite dramatically over the season, and that is in favor of sleeping longer in the during seasons when it's colder, yes. right, in the right. winter. When it's darker so for longer. something about Dark, yeah, uh, that right. cost-benefit trade-offs, maybe it's less useful to be out and about when there's less light and less Could heat. Be. Presumably um, less food together as well. Food. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So the whole cost-balancing shifts, and that season seasonal effect tells us something I think very important about sleep. At least one part of it. Yeah, uh, there it means something. I think we right. uh, it's 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 a pretty big difference to be a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Sure, right. What does it mean? You know, we'll have to find out. It could be opportunity costs. It could be that you don't want to lose as much heat by being active when it's cold. Um, it could be both. Yeah. These are not mutually exclusive explanations. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that you're right, that there probably isn't a single answer as to why organisms on planet Earth sleep. That the, it, is a, it is a complicated question. And of course, your, your answer is spoken like a true scientist. Um, there's all these unanswered questions, reasons yes. for more funding. Got to yep. get that. Uh, future know, research. Future research, it research, it. research. More study is, is needed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a bit of a trope, but it's also kind of true. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm really proud of the work that you've done, Gandhi. And I think that um, it's very exciting, um, and I, I'm looking forward to see how your how your career yeah. uh, you know, continues. Too. You're really on to something here. We have another question from Pime. Uh, has anyone studied about humans having issues with sleeping because we are taking ourselves out of a regular mammalian state, uh, potentially of being vulnerable and having their senses heightened to danger, whereas humans have a room, a bed, mm. a quilt, dull down their mammalian survival instinct. Do we know anything? I mean, I guess well, these comparative studies between species yeah. might get at this a little bit. So yeah, we are, presumably, most of us in our homes are safe when we go to bed. Right. We're not going to be preyed upon. You know, we're in Albuquerque, right? I know. <laughs> but but Gandhi's actually studied this. He studied uh, right. dwellings and, and yes. whether people have walls, right. how that affects sleep, which kind of gets at this question, right? Yes. Um, so feeling right. safe and being safe is not the same. Now, <laughs> uh, I looked at Chimane, within the Chimane population, some people have houses where it's basically four poles and a roof. That's it. And other people put in a lot of time and effort. They tie these bamboo shoots together and they make walls all the way around their house. These walls don't keep out the bugs. They don't insulate temperature. They don't insulate noise. They give you privacy and they make sure that nothing can wander into your house. Is it windy and in Amazonian Bolivia? Like, is, it, is, it, is it providing any protection from the elements? If it doesn't protect you from bugs or from temperature? No, I didn't days? test for wind. So I can't say that definitively, but I suspect that it makes a small difference. Yeah. Because uh, it's Cause still pretty drastic. Uh, even if the ambient temperature wasn't, wasn't you know, we, we lose heat to the, to the environment. Right. And we lose more heat 
via convection if there's wind. Right. So you can imagine the protection from wind might, might give you some benefit. But that's, of course, is a tropical environment, and that may not be all that That's important. also true. Um, but well, that notwithstanding, you would expect that maybe it doesn't make a difference in sleep, but there actually is a significant difference in sleep in these two houses. And the difference is people who have walls have higher sleep efficiency. Okay. So not absolute hours, but... Their sleep duration is the same. But it actually ends up being more variable from night to night. Hmm. It gets even hmm. more complicated. So if you have, they put more in the bank, maybe. That's how I think. If you don't have yeah, walls maybe. on your house, and you suspect that you have a more unpredictable environment, a greater risk that you're going to have sleep interruption, lose sleep because of it, you go to bed earlier and at a more consistent time. So that if anything happens, you wake up, you deal with it, you go back to sleep, you still get the right amount of sleep that you need. If you've now, you mentioned that Americans run about 85% sleep mm -hmm. efficiency, uh, or first-worlders, I'll say. Did the Chimai run higher or lower than that? Um, I don't remember the exact numbers. It's not far off of 85. I don't know that the average in the U.S. is 85 either. I just know that that's so like the, a cutoff between healthy and unhealthy. Oh, okay, all right. The average. So what I was getting high. at is, with that hypothesis that you're uh, getting beating around, it would suggest that with our far more secure walls and greater privacy and so forth, that we would have a higher sleep efficiency because we're less expecting to be awakened and have to go deal with something in the middle of the night. It still happens, but less of it. That's, or just less vulnerable to, to predators. To, to rephrase that, um, I think that if a Chimane has walls, if a Chimane person has walls, and that makes them go to bed later because they know that they have a less unpredictable environment and they can still sleep enough, even if they stay up late, take that to the extreme. Don't make that bamboo walls. Make that regular you know, wood and sheetrock and insulation wall that's quiet and everything else. Now you've got almost no unpredictability in your sleeping space. What do you expect? What would you predict would that the effect on sleep would be? Well, you're probably going to stay up as late as you possibly can and try to push that sleep efficiency as close to 100% as you can get it. How do you do that? Right. Spend less time in yeah, bed man. and end up sleeping less. And then what happens if you pushed it too far? You sleep, you have very high sleep efficiency, but you also have short sleep, and you start to feel like you didn't get enough. You start feeling tired. Hmm. That's kind of how I, I feel that's like what I, I suspect is, is a large component of why we're all interested in sleep, why we all care about it, and yet don't get enough. Because we're, right. pu we're pushing it right up to the limit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we're playing chicken with it. And again, we're, we're, we're assuming that most of us have a relatively stable home environment um, and stable a stable home, right? And while well, it's right. not falling apart, mm -hmm. that may not be true in say Puerto Rico right now. Um, certainly in Albuquerque, yeah. there are plenty, plenty of people right here in, in this town who don't have a stable home environment who could be you know, beaten up or worse. Um, and we know that that affects sleep too. Absolutely, in, in the direction that I think that your model would predict. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of questions here, and <clears throat> and they're like sort of related. Um, so Flo and Pros is asking, are the Chimane with walls more wealthy or whatever equivalent to that? 
seems like there may be a confounding variable there that the Ooh. people who have the luxury of time or uh, whatever it may, or perhaps money probably, to build walls may be more secure in general. This is a really great question. Great question. Very, very and, and then related mm -hmm. to, to that, just not necessarily the confounding part of it, but the walls and all of these different sleep conditions, um, Nico Damas asked earlier, lots of these changes have happened over such short time scales relative to the changes over which biology would actually change and, and then affect behavior. Yes, no. What do, what do we think about those kinds of things related to how different sleep ch conditions might actually change behaviors? Well, and thus trade offs. Right. Part A is when you build a house out of organic materials in the tropics, it's going to degrade. And they have to rebuild their houses, they told me, is approximately once every five years. Uh, I had about 77% of my sample had walls. Wow. which lines up pretty closely with that. So it may just be a function. I, I don't have definitive evidence for this, but it is an interesting coincidence, and it may be a product of these same people will have walls, but they didn't have them yet. Uh, There's no other dimension, not age, uh, no measures of wealth, um, not number of kids, nothing that I was able to check significantly correlated with walls to speak to the difference in economic status being a driver of the sleep patterns. To the degree that these trade-offs could be shifted in the United States or elsewhere, you know, certainly if you could get by on five hours of sleep a night and feel great, you'd want to do that. I would want to do sure, that. Right. Um, yeah. What are the selective pressures that would possibly allow for that to happen? You know, whoever has the mutations their, their metabolism, not just in their brain, but in their liver, in their blood, and in all of their tissues, they have adaptations that can function sufficiently on five hours of sleep. If all of those mutations came, and the people who had those mutations had more children, didn't, then very slowly over hundreds of thousands of years of having a modern post-industrial economy you could have evolution towards sleeping five hours per night. Uh, so, so we might see those changes, at least in, in theory. If you're, uh, if you're uh, optimistic maybe, uh, about future human economics in that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, under, under current timescales, we are genetically, we haven't undergone those that many right. generations Correct. where we would even expect to see selection for a change in our, in our uh, sleeping sure. habits. I suspect. The thing that would but favor that. that. Yeah. Sorry, are you guys going to freak out if I mention uh, Stephen Jay Gould's punctate evolution? I know it's uh, controversial. Freaking out right now. You guys can handle it. I'm triggered. Right. So uh, if that's no, if that's no a thing, and, and his evidence for it does seem credible to me, then the very rapid changes of the Industrial Revolution, this would be a time when such a thing might occur. But arguing in the other direction is the fact that nearly every human being alive can reproduce now because we've so thoroughly kicked nature's ass all of us get reproductive opportunities now. Not, not all of nearly, us. Nearly, nearly. Yeah. No, you, you really have to fall far through the cracks. Resources. No, people, people, some people, infants still die, even in yeah. even in places that are industrialized. Compared to say Victorian we, times, no, we, we, or see, something yeah. like we see that. variability both in survival and certainly in reproduction. So, so I don't. I would I would disagree with your premise. So you do not agree that there's less selective pressure now than there was a hundred years ago, or two hundred, or five hundred. There's, no, there's different selective pressure, but not less. 
I guess, yeah, I'm going to... There's 8 billion of us. I, mean, I, I mean, would argue we're pretty good at staying alive. It depends, alive and, it well, depends on context. Argued, what people have argued is, in fact, and that all 8 billion of us like to boink, up. which means trampolines. <laughs> evolution is, is, from what, when we look at rates of evolution, the fact that there are so many humans on the planet right now, and there certainly is variation in both, uh, in reproduction, um, modern medicine notwithstanding, uh, there's, there's variation certainly in survival and, and lots of infectious selection happening right now. But in fact, um, selection speed and, and evolution is actually speeding up. We see more rapid genetic change now than we have. Because we have more variability that can yeah. respond. Right. But I think punctate evolution requires intense selective rates are pressure. Much lower. That is totally true. Keep in mind, uh, you know, if you've got four, yeah. evolution and natural selection are the same thing. A genetic drift, migration, and mutation are also components of evolution. If you have a larger population of the species on the planet, that allows for more mutation happening on the planet per year. We also have more migration than ever in species history. We also, if we have two kids instead of nine, that means that drift is going to be a larger component of uh, phenotypic so outcomes. More of all these things. So I'm talking more about directionality. Um, you're right. There's a lot that's involved in evolution, but if we're trying to speculate that our sleep patterns would change in an evolutionary meaningfully in an ever, evolutionarily meaningful way because we live in this different environment now than the one that we evolved into then there needs to be enough selective pressure if we want to say that that could happen faster than 100,000 or 500,000 years and i think it could because when we selectively breed animals for example we can change them in several generations uh, right. Foxes went from totally unable to tolerate humans to pet breeds mm -hmm. in well under 50 generations of foxes. Right. So uh, evolution can happen fast, but it requires intense and directional selective pressure, right. I would have said. I think it's absolutely theoretically possible. Uh, I'm skeptical of its practical life. Um, you know, right. the other three forces of evolution are very much ramped up more than in species history. If natural selection is not ramped up to the same degree, then as a relative influence on future genotype proportions, natural selection is actually probably, in my opinion, weaker now than it would have been before. So evolution that could be stronger point. while natural selection is weaker. Right. That, that's my personal so opinion. I don't have let's break that down actually a little bit because... So we, we are contrasting natural selection from the other three sort of driving forces of evolution. Um, so let's break down those other three. The first one I'll take gene flow, which I would say we have more of than ever these days, certainly. Um, so, but there are two others. If you look at drift, drift is anything that can happen by random chance. You know, you've got, yeah. let's say for any given locus in the genome, Know, we'll say we'll pretend What's this is a locus Gandhi a locus is a single uh, base pair in DNA um, where there is a difference you know one person could have an a at that step in the ladder and another person could have a C and right. the outcome could be blue eyes or brown eyes and you inherit one of these from one parent and from the other parent. and you expect on average that for a couple with blue and brown eyes that you're going to have 25% blue eyes or no, let's say 50-50. All right, this is a bad example already. It's too, more complicated than I wanted it to be. 
Let's say you've got white flowers and red flowers. You mix the two together, you get pink flowers. Bring it back to Mendel. Yes. <laughs> I love a Punnett well, square. Let's go back yeah. to Mendel. It's because the pink flowers have one pink allele, one, I'm sorry, they have one white allele and one red allele. So they're both expressed. You mix white and red, you get pink. Mm -hmm. So if you have these two flowers, one white and one red, and you breed them and you have uh, 16 flowers come out of it, you expect you might have approximately, they either, they're either all going to be pink or you're going to see half and half or some kind of normal distribution, right? And the more offspring there are, the closer to a normal distribution there's going to be. You know, the Punnett square example still being pretty weak. I, I hope the, uh, the normal distribution makes sense. The more N you have, the more normal that curve will look. So if you're a Chimane environment and you have nine kids, you're going to get pretty close, or at least you're going to get a lot closer to the expected distribution of phenotypes within a household than when you only have two kids or even one kid. If you've only got one kid, you've got some kind of random chance. There's only one. So this is an argument for having lots of kids. It could be. If you've got a one percent chance up. of having a certain outcome. Let's say the super genius telekinesis gene, a 1% chance. You have one kid and that kid gets it. 100% of the offspring from that family have telekinesis powers. Conversely, if you have 99% of the genes say you're going to be perfectly healthy and normal, you could still, and you only have one kid, that one kid could still end up having a lot of severe problems. So, that's what drift refers to is this kind of stochastic nature of inheritance and random randomness and when you have smaller family size randomness is a larger uh influence on outcome than when you have a larger family size and so because we have lower fertility now than we used to randomness is becoming more of an issue yeah, although I wouldn't have said family size, but simply total numbers, because remember, each family is rolling a separate dice. Each of those D100s has a chance of coming up one, but um, all the family are rolling separate dice. So if you have 20 families, you're still going to roll 20 dice. Well, that's true. Or one family with 20 kids, you're still rolling 20 dice. Well, that's true, but you're, you're, if you're going to be looking at the average of two dice, and then if it's below three, you take those dice and you throw them in the garbage, um, you're not rolling 20 dice. You're rolling two dice 10 times, and that's not the same. So that's where the randomness comes into it. So even though we have a larger population on the planet than we used to, um, randomness can still be a larger influence than it would have been before. So, and listen, these probabilities, thinking about what is drift and potentially random versus some uh, fingerprint and evidence for selection on these traits and natural natural selection driving what we see with sleep and sleep patterns. I think these are, are really, really valuable things to think about. Um, to me though, what the, the, one of the driving ideas when it comes to sleep and certainly modern, modernity in us is this idea that that many sleep behaviors we can imagine were or are adaptive in an evolutionary context. 
that we don't we don't exhibit the var the variation in this trait that's completely random. So the seasonality effects or the effects on temperature, um, the other other influences that that Gandhi has has uh, shown so well in his research that I, I'm I'm suggesting that those things are not probably you know random. That mm -hmm. in fact these are evidence of selection. And if that's the case, then we can imagine that some of the things that we do, kind of get, bring it back to the original yeah, yeah. idea that we are, we are mismatched to our current sleep regime and our current environment. So the kind of the things that regulate our sleep and the, our, the genetic uh, effects that, um, that kind of play into our circadian rhythm, uh, these get dysregulated or messed up uh, when we're exposed to different light wavelengths or different... Um, you know, exposures like from a cell phone and that sort of thing. Sure. And another thing, with the, so, you know, we have touched on this a little bit, but, you know, of course, I'm really interested in the microbiome, and the research that I've done has been on what happens to night shift workers. So the ER docs that stay up all night, um, how do they exhibit, uh, or do they exhibit problems? Right. And we know from nurses that there's been lots of studies of, of night shift workers in hospitals, and nurses in particular, uh, we see a pretty remarkable weight gain with numbers of years worked mm -hmm. in, in a night shift environment. So weight gain, metabolism is plugged into sleep, um, and probably the abnormal exposure of staying up all night is both a, is a circadian stress that messes us up. Or is it behavioral and cultural? Because well, during the night shift, you're not yeah. surrounded by the conventional world, and so you can indulge in behaviors somebody might raise an eyebrow at uh, if you were in a more you know, in the regular working daytime. It may be you give yourself nurse. permission. It could be both. Uh, I was I actually looked at an abstract earlier today. Um, that's not as useful as the one I read a long time ago. Irrelevant for you. So if you look at sleep deprivation, you let people eat whatever they want. Um, people who are sleep deprived are more likely to want to eat snack kind of like chips exactly. or cookies so your your eating behavior right. actually changes yeah, yeah. you prioritize energy dense high fat high carbohydrate yes. foods yep. so they're priority you're not going to go after the bell pepper or the right. bean sprouts you're going to want to go after the crispy cream the priorities this has actually been shown so what does that mean that the priorities change why would their preferences change you know that may be reflective of something else and so they're these are not mutually exclusive explanations that the two of you are offering right. they're both quite good mm -hmm. and both quite plausible so eating behavior is part of it um it's also been shown that people that work overnight tend to exercise less in the in their subsequent day so activity patterns change so it almost seems like once you stay up all night uh, the way that i look at this is that it's a it's a it's a stress it's a stress on your body uh, and, of course, you are incurring a sleep deficit because right. night shift workers, even if you do it on a regular schedule, it's been shown they get fewer hours of sleep per night compared to people that work during the day. Um, so your body does change, and you do prioritize these sometimes what we consider unhealthy foods, and also people don't exercise as much as they should. So, of course, this is going to be related to some lifestyle problems. Right. We're going to see changes in obesity and diabetes. We're going to see all the inflammatory complications that go along with that, including maybe cancer. And these consequences appear to be true even for people who self-identify as owls rather than larks, right. meaning they would say, no, my natural rhythm is to go to bed at 2 a.m. and get up at noon. 
which is actually a reasonable sleep rhythm. Um, and, well, it'd be a little long, but you take my point. So they would self-identify and say, this is my natural rhythm. This is what I prefer. This is how I'm more comfortable. Yet they still show some of the signs of a disordered circadian cycle compared to the larks who don't like being up late at night, even if they sometimes can do it. Gandhi, have you looked for owls and larks in uh, a hunter-gatherer, hunter-horticulturalist <clears throat> population? Yes, I have. And I uh, looked at the same exact figure as a colleague, and I interpreted it as meaning there's no owls and larks in this population. He interpreted it as meaning, wow, there's more owls and larks in this population than any I've ever seen before. What? <laughs> well, they can't be more than 100%. Yeah. Well, the reason so that we... So you look at the same we, data and come to a different conclusion? Yes. Can't believe it. The reason Imagine for that, that. Yeah. is because I sorted their sleep patterns on a single graph, and instead of seeing a bimodal distribution, where some would look like owls and some look like larks, it was a normal distribution. You saw a continuum. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. The, the reason he thought it was more extreme is because... The, the ends, the two tails, two were way longer than he had ever seen before. People oh, on the extremes were much more extreme. Because some people have argued that in a, say, a traditional, evolutionarily relevant environment, it would be useful for a family group to have people with some variation in sleep patterns, because that would be protective against sure. large predators, right? you know, other aggressive humans that might be in the, in the neighborhood, and these kinds of things. So people have you know, armchair speculated about, about those, that, that that might be useful. I don't think that we have any evidence to support no, that idea. Yeah. Um, what about uh, larks versus owls in IQ? I know I've seen some things and some people in chat are bringing this up as well, that like, yes. there have been some studies that show that people who go to bed later have higher IQs. But um, uh, people that go to bed later also have more depression. Yeah. Bummer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it seemed, it's certainly a, a, a correlation issue mm -hmm. that maybe it's not necessarily going to bed later that's driving the higher IQ, but yeah. there's some other confounding mm -hmm. variable there. But maybe people who have higher IQ go to bed later. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. On average. I'm actually not, I'm not aware of the IQ On data. On average, yes. Which means there's plenty of high IQ people who go to bed early as well. Right. Yeah, for right. sure. So yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to, to make the distinction. Uh, I'm definitely more of an owl, but I wish I was a lark. Yeah, I'm a lark for sure. Well, our job makes us that way. I mean, almost all the yeah. jobs I had all my life were nighttime jobs. I worked yeah. graveyard all the way through high school. Yeah. Practically every job Ooh. I had was a night or evening job. I don't think job. I could do it. And uh, the current job I have now is a regular daytime kind of job. And I have to say, my body still prefers that. After all those really? years of working mostly nights... I still prefer the it's, daytime. It's better for you. We listen. We've evolved on a planet with a twenty-four hour diurnal yeah. cycle, and that's that's how I think that we respond best. This may be. Uh, um. We're having <laughs> oh, some activity problems. Oh, Gandhi, you're frozen. Hang on. We, we were frozen, Gandhi. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, oh, there we go. Hang on. <laughs> we had a robot. Um, let me restart. I'll re recall here. Hang on one second, guys. Um, Let's talk about Gandhi. <laughs> <he's gone. laughs> disappearing Gandhi. You're back. He's back. You're back. Oh, Can you hear us? Okay. 
Right, you were a, a robot with a, a silly face. Yes. It was pretty fun. <laughs> and also the freeze frame was bad. Yes, it was quite good. Um... I, was just, uh, I was just saying that I can set my own work schedule, and that has been right. this true for many years. And when I lived in Albuquerque, I woke up between 8 and 10. And last year, I was waking up between 7 and 9, and now I wake up between 6 and 7. There's nothing that's really changed other than me being older, sure. which may be you're also the moving, thing. But you're moving west. <laughs> it could be the west. It could be that it's just <laughs> age, and so by the time I'm 35, I'm going to be waking up at 3 a.m., and by the time I'm 40, I'm going to be waking up at 11 p.m. You know, I'll circle around by the time I get to senescence, but right. somehow I doubt that. <laughs> so what do you make of these preferences in owls and larks? I mean, I don't know. I think that they're very descriptive terms that are reflective of something, but I don't think that they are... I'm not convinced that they're evolutionary strategies to be an owl or a lark for your whole life sure. in the way that like a Mendelian trait could predispose you to one or the right. other. I'm not convinced. No, it's, it's, in, it's interesting that you that you have data showing sort of a smooth, continuous yes you know, uh, distribution of that trait. Yeah. Which is interesting. At least in, in yeah. the work in the work that I've been doing and studying my emergency medicine colleagues who stay up all night, I've asked people, "Are you a lark or are you an owl?" And I asked them, "What is your how well are you able to deal with working night shifts?" So I'd be, I would be on one tail of that and say that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really able to yeah, work them yeah. well at all. Some people actually prefer them and think it's no problem at sure. all. So there's, we see variation even in our own group of colleagues who work in the emergency room. We see some of these uh, you know, trait distributions. I was actually both. I'm very much a lark left to my own devices. I yeah. get up at sometime between 3 and 4.30 in the morning. What? Um, and that's without an alarm clock or anything. That's my preference. Yet, when I did most of my working life at night, mm -hmm. I liked the night shift for a variety of other reasons, partly because I like to work too. Yeah. And so um, I was perfectly mm -hmm. happy working night shift, but not on the grounds of when I slept. That one aspect of it was part of the price, but it was a small price in, in comparison to what I felt the rewards were. Trade-offs. Hmm. Yeah. So hey, well, how many hours do you both typically get on average? When I took some time off and I could sleep any time I wanted, I would go to bed about 10 and get up at 3, and then I'd take a nap in the late morning. And so I got about six hours a day if left them completely chunks, to my own probably. devices, but in two bites. Yeah. And I don't know why. That just felt right. You know? Maybe that's your first and second sleep, I Right. Suppose. I would say for me, yeah. seven and a half to eight hours. Yeah. I typically yeah. feel better when I get about seven and a half, um, but I'm in bed way too long. I, I, I'm realizing this, that I yeah. probably would have better sleep efficiency if I spent less time in bed. We don't know Once that in a better great sleep while, like Three or four times a year, I'll sleep until eight. Yeah. Like, God is going to say yeah. that better sleep efficiency We don't know that, better, that higher sleep efficiency is better. The term efficiency yeah. is loaded sure. and it's not very objective. Yeah, totally. Because yeah, yeah, you yeah. can look at sleep quality. So it's a really good in the point, limited yeah. data that I have using actigraphy uh, on my ER doctors in their natural habitat, not mm -hmm. unlike what Gandhi did with the Chimane um, in their natural habitat, is that we found that emergency physicians have pretty good sleep 
efficiency but poor sleep quality with lots of lots of interruptions and fragmented sleep. So um, the worker that, that helped me do this, he said it was similar to what he sees with <clears throat> underprivileged kids who have a lot of um, uh, disruption in the family, you know, uh, violence and aggression uh, exposures. So it kind of makes sense that, that we, we ER docs live sort of a, a kind of a stressful life. Did you correlate cortisol levels with that? So here's actually maybe um, maybe we can kind of wrap things up or get close <laughs> yeah. to this a little bit because we are getting sure. a little late. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did want to take advantage of having all these smart people on this on this call with me um, to talk about kind of what we're going to be doing with uh, my my current study. So the hypothesis oh, cool. is we've been gathering all these saliva samples over shift shifts and days and nights from ER doctors, and the idea is that. We know that the microbiome also has a circadian rhythm, as, as do we. So our brains have a circadian rhythm, our sleep-wake cycles have a circadian rhythm, most of the gene expression in our body exhibits this 24-hour cycle, uh, and so, do our, so does our microbiome. The, the microbes exhibit changes that oscillate uh, over a 24-hour cycle, and this is true both in your gut and also in your mouth. So we wanted to measure these mouth microbes in the saliva and see if we can find any patterns uh, that happens in shift workers. So one, does that, is, do those oscillations get abolished by, by shift work? Do night shift workers have a dysbiosis and sort of you know, messed up salivary microbiome? And is it also mismatched with the pattern, the normal pattern of, of cortisol? So uh, stress hormones like cortisol show a very, very dramatic circadian pattern that um, peaks right about when you wake up and then it goes down, and then when you go to sleep, it kind of ramps back up again. Interesting. Um, so interesting, there are microbe populations that show almost the exact same pattern. That could be a coincidence, or it could be actually the cortisol that's, that's driving some of these things. Mm, that's really well, cortisol would raise blood glucose. And I also so. could do that too. I also talked to Ben Trumbull, um, who Gandhi knows, you guys know. Yep. Um, smart guy, interested in testosterone too. And testosterone, of course, male sex hormone, also drives immunity. So like cortisol, has a potential to influence the microbes in our bodies. So we're going to look at that. But my basic idea or hypothesis, I think it's really kind of making me um, kind of excited about this research, is the idea that not only are our bodies mismatched for our current regime of staying up all night and working bizarre shifts, but we're also mismatched with regard to what our microbiomes. And the, the mismatch, which is important and might drive some bad health outcomes is that what our immune systems expect and we're responding to to microbial inputs basically is out of sync so our immune system our hormones are out of step with our microbiome and that may actually cause problems so that's the working hypothesis that i have do you have any doctors who have cortisol deficiencies like addison's disease anybody like that not that i know of that would be a really interesting yeah. little case study or that, or yeah. to have someone like that in the study. That'd be really interesting. Well, we can certainly look at the testosterone thing because we can look at men and women. Right. Um, and tease that out. Yeah. Um, Mike Sy says, this explains midnight mud butt. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I think you've got the title for your article. <laughs> <laughs> title for something, anyway. Yeah, right? <laughs> at least a blog post, yeah. maybe. But, Gani, do you have any, any feedback for, for my crazy idea? Uh. Sounds pretty reasonable. I, as I understand it, if you externally wake up rodents, they will also have a spike in cortisol upon waking. Um, 
it is possible that the act of waking is stressful and that's why you have a spike in cortisol but it's also possible that when you're laying down in bed your body's you know your muscular tissue is not doing anything and right. when you're waking up it is and so having vasodilation and increased heart rate and all these other uh, physiological outcomes that are associated with the spike in cortisol are useful now how that sure. has, no, I, mean, I, don't know. I, I, I would imagine that the circadian rhythm of cortisol production is is adaptive yeah. and does right. serve some function it is also associated with heart attacks oh really so people tend to have heart attacks on average about the time that they wake up you know, really? or, or early in the morning and it's associated with this cortisol spike. I did not know that. And also a catecholamine, stress hormone yeah. uh, increase. Interesting. I suppose that, so, yeah. uh, I that if you have this spike in cortisol, you're having a very large magnitude change in your overall cardiovascular state in a very short period of time. And if some of your tissues are changing faster than others, I would suspect that would make you at a higher risk for having a heart attack. Is that correct? That, that makes sense to me. Um, and certainly people that are healthy otherwise are not going to have heart attacks. Right. So you have to have some sure. underlying disease right, right. and this normal pattern superimposed upon, upon it. Um, and we also know that people that undergo circadian stress just with going to daylight savings also have a Dude. spike in heart attacks. That's the worst day of, of the year to drive a car. It's, the most it's, it's accidents. The like, yeah. Man, there's so many things to talk about. Yeah. Um, I know. This is, uh, this is obviously yeah. kind of driven a really great conversation. Okay. Um, I, I find it personally very interesting. Me too. <laughs> and I'm devoting silly some, some of my research bandwidth to this, this topic. <laughs> um, it's great also because we still don't really have an answer. You know, that answered the question that I posed earlier. Why did sleep evolve? Yes, we evolved on a planet where the Earth circles around the sun, where we get this diurnal exposure. It's roughly on a 24-hour periodicity, and it drives all kinds of oscillations that, that probably reflect underlying trade-offs of the kind that, that Gandhi talked about. Um, that, yeah, we, we should partition various efforts by time of day and by season. And, and it's, it's remarkable that I think that this oscillatory pattern has gone understudied for so long in anthropology and biology and in medicine. It really is a new frontier. And sleep seems to serve different functions in different creatures. It goes all the sure. way down to pre-vertebrates, way down uh, to insects and so forth. And it's not clear that it's doing the same thing for all of us. So one thing to look at would be, are these variations on a theme or have we taken a pre-evolved thing like sleep and turned it to our own uses the way that we use um, uh, estrogen, which is a plant hormone, but is now a human secondary sexual uh, uh, sex hormone. And dopamine, which is a microbially derived neurochemical right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is now a neurotransmitter in our Yeah, body. so does yeah. each species repurpose sleep to their own thing or are we all doing variations on some central theme? Good question. Great I question. see a review, uh, the need for a review article. Yeah. That looks at this in a really so. comparative uh, perspective. More Would it so, be written by a guy named Gandhi? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. We'll just put that on his plate. Yeah, I got a real big <laughs> plate at this point. 
Uh, oh, there is one more from Nico Donis. Is there any discussion related to changes in mean atmospheric temperature, metabolism, and potential influences on sleep patterns? Well, so temperature like, is a big driver of yeah. sleep, seasonal right? changes. Sure, in yeah, fact, yeah. it's uh, work that Gandhi has done, just to paraphrase, That's right. suggests that you're going to sleep better when it's colder. Right. Um, so, obviously not, not too cold. You don't want to have a major stress on your body. Right. Because uh, then you're going to probably seek, probably wake up to try to get warm. Mm -hmm. but, um, but in general, having, having a, a cool temperature is going to promote sleep. A lot of sleep labs endorse about 65 degrees. Yeah, the sleep labs where, I, where I've spent a little bit of time, they keep them uncomfortably cold for the rest of us, but they actually yeah. do promote sleep. Interesting. I, I was mentioning earlier in chat, actually, that if it's too hot in my room while I'm sleeping, I tend to have nightmares. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. So do I, but I think it's like because it my wife fails. is kicking me to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I see, a, I see a question here. Do night shift workers need fecal transplants? From Dr. W. Yeah. Cordy. So yeah, we kind of yeah. we were talking about that a little bit. So we, yeah, we always talk about. Don't drink the chocolate milk. milk. Right, it's, it comes up every single time. It's not really chocolate milk. Right. So I guess who knows, right? <laughs> I mean, may, maybe we could find a microbe pattern that is that actually promotes um, the ability to work night shifts and be metabolically healthy. Be healthy. I think it's possible. You know, I'm not actually studying that myself. So we'll, we'll hold that one out there. Needs future research. The newest, right. more yeah. performance-enhancing drugs. Fecal transplant. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Or maybe we should have to swap some spit since that's the that's the focus of my current study. Yeah. But doping. So bringing it back to boinking. Gotta bring it back. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Wait. What? LSL says, as a night shift worker, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe probiotics, dietary. Sure. There's, there are things that yeah, we can yeah. do if if the microbiome is important in some of these things for night shifts. Then there are some possible things we can do. But about doping. It. But doping, indeed. Oh that, that's in, that might be the uh, the final word. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Well, uh, I, I'm about ready for some sleep. Too. We covered a lot of ground. We did. Gandhi was awesome. Yes, thank what you so much for, to meet you, sir. for yeah. joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, we, we didn't even touch really most of what we had in the slides because our conversation with you was so interesting but. <laughs> and fruitful. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, thank you guys so much for watching. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much, uh, and uh, we'll see you see you next time. Uh, over now. All right. Bye bye. Until next time.